For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ken. I'm a <clears throat> retired Army chaplain and retired um, teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. Once in a while, Dennis and the session graciously give me the opportunity to break open God's word to you, which I consider to be an honor. Our text for today is out of John chapter 6, 22 through 40. It is the third, I think, of what will be four sermons on this chapter. Uh, it is on page 891 on your pew Bible underneath the chair in front of you. Hear the word of God. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his, his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the crowd had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God has, the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who, gives, who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you've, you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, not, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The word of God. If you go to the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, you will find the ancient site of Capernaum. Some of you may have been there, as I had the opportunity to do during a trip to Israel in the 1980s. You can stand on the ruins of a synagogue built a century later than the events that are recorded in our text. Without a doubt, this is the exact same place that Jesus stood when he gave the first of seven I Am statements that structure the central part of the Gospel of John that we're entering into today. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Now, each statement is associated with a sign that reveals something about the nature of Christ 
and his mission. John does not record these signs simply to portray Jesus' ability to do anything he desires to do. They are there, as scholar N.T. Wright points out, as moments in the text when the strange glory of the Word made flesh shines through. Not so much because Jesus can do whatever he wants, but because this particular thing is so closely, closely associated with what Israel's God does at a key moment in Israel's history. We will take a closer look at one of these key moments in redemptive history, as recorded for us in John chapter 6, and a word-deed association in which God teaches us something critical about his redemptive work. But first, first let's pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaAlum, Hamotzi Lechem Min HaAretz. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. This breaking of the bread blessing, known as the Hamotzi, is recited in observant Jewish families at the beginning of every meal where bread is present, particularly on the Shabbat, the Sabbath, Friday evening. It harkens back to the Passover and to a time when bread was the main component of a meal and an essential element of survival. Today, we often treat bread as an extra. In fact, a lot of restaurants I've been to lately, you almost have to ask for it when you go to dinner. But in Jesus' day, as throughout much of history and in many cultures even to this day, bread was essential for physical life. A basic food that made up 60 to 70% of the people's diets. Now, in the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and the associated discourse in John 6, Jesus uses the imagery of bread for that which sustains physical life, but then he infuses the image with new meaning as a metaphor for that which brings spiritual life found only in him. He doesn't minimize laboring to meet physical needs. However, Jesus challenges us to prioritize seeking him, the true source of life, over the pursuit of material things. In other words, he challenges us to get our priorities right and not to waste our life pursuing that which ultimately has no significance. Let's examine this challenge as we look at this text in three parts that follow the paragraph divisions in the English Standard Version Bible. The people's search described, the people's hearts exposed, and the people's need revealed. First John sets the uh, context in verses 22 to 25 as we see the people's search described. Now, the day after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, a sizable crowd remained to see what Jesus would do next. I mean, this crowd has been following him for some time, almost to the point of harassment, if you will. Um, and uh, Jesus and his disciples got very little part away from this crowd. And recognizing that Jesus' disciples had crossed over the lake in the only available boat that was there, and that Jesus had not gone with them, they began to search for him on that side of the, of the sea. Discovering that he was no longer on the eastern shore, they assume that he's returned to his home base in Capernaum, which is Jesus' home base and his ministry in Galilee. And so they embark across the lake in some boats that probably ended up on that side because of the storm, um, and they go looking for him. Landing in Capernaum, they are, of course, curious about how he ended up there. 
Now, we don't have any indication that they're aware of the miracle of Jesus walking on water. They probably, they obviously probably didn't. Things were not like today where a flash news comes up on Fox or CNN and you find out something strange has happened, but they didn't have any idea. And so they asked him, Rabbi, when did you come here? As with many questions posed by the crowds, Jesus doesn't answer it directly. Actually, he, does, he just completely ignores it here. Instead, as we will see in the next section, he gets to the heart of the matter and questions the motives for their search. Now, you might think Jesus would be happy that the crowds are following him. But, you know, after all, the bigger the crowd, the more we hear the message, right? But Jesus knows their true motivations, remember? Remember earlier in the, in the text, we learned that the crowd wanted to forcibly make him king. That certainly wasn't high on Jesus' priority list in terms of God's kingdom agenda. They are seeking a Jesus who fits their image, a Jesus who fits their needs, and they even attempt to manipulate him to get what they want. How often are we guilty of doing the same thing? If you're like me, and I assume you probably are, you're not above doing that, right? Looking for Jesus that meets our needs on our terms, and even manipulating him a little bit if you are trying to, to get what you want. Attempting to come to Jesus on our terms rather than his. Trying to define him in terms comfortable to us. And seeking him for what we think we need rather than God's kingdom agenda. Now Jesus knows the heart of men. And when the crowd followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he sees that moment to expose their self-centered motivations, like he does for us. In this next section, we see the people's hearts exposed in verses 26 to 34. So Jesus said to the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I mean, Jesus exposes their true motives. They're not really interested in the deeper meaning of the signs. And as we saw earlier in the quote I gave from N.T. Wright, each of the signs has some significance. There's a reason for it being in the text where it is. That's particularly true of John and his association with these I am statements. They're not really interested in the deeper meaning. They only want their physical needs met. They were happy as long as they were getting the bread and as often as they could get it. The crowds wanted an earthly prophet or king who would restore Israel. They would want an earthly deliverer like Moses who would supply them with food like man in the wilderness and then bring them earthly freedom like the Exodus. Jesus rebukes those who follow him only for the material blessings of life. As one commentator rightly points out, our desires and passions cannot be trusted because they're self-seeking, rooted in our skewed perception of what is real and what really matters. There was a time in our history when people would join the church as a means of, to gain respect and economic advantage in the community. Those days are long gone, right? But there was a time, particularly as a Presbyterian church, right? Join the Presbyterian church, sign of wealth and prosperity. But as Dennis suggested last week, there remains a popular element in the evangelical thought that emphasizes the material blessings that come as a result of following Christ. I don't know about you, but I've heard, and maybe have even been guilty uh, at times when I've shared the gospel with others, of kind of painting that picture that, you know, when you follow the Lord, everything will be, you know, completely solved for you, and um, there are no problems or no issues, but that's just not true. 
Um, the primary focus is on what God can do for us. That's what they are focusing on. But the gospel is not about your best life now. It's not about accumulating stuff or being free from pain and suffering or enjoying increasing prosperity. It's not about those things. Certainly, following the gospel in our daily life will result in more productive and, fr- and a more productive and fruitful life. The gospel encourages human flourishing. I believe that. But unlike the false promise of the prosperity gospel, blessings, particularly material ones, are not guaranteed. As Dennis pointed, pointed out and mentioned, just look at the places around the world where following Christ not only reduces your access to material prosperity, they may even cost you your life. Material blessings or their lack are not a measure of faith, nor are they a reason to seek Christ. Jesus reinforces this message to the crowd by telling them to work for food that does not spoil. Jesus is not minimizing the need to work to meet our physical needs. Rather, he rebukes the crowd for their purely materialistic notion of God's kingdom. They're looking at God's kingdom purely in a materialistic sense and what they can provide for them. Again, the crowd misses the deeper significance of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and what Jesus means regarding the nature of eternal bread. Building on their system of works righteousness, they fixate on the word work. And they ask, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, this displays a typical overconfidence that fallen men and women have in their ability to save themselves. An overconfidence that's built into our sin nature and that even can ensnare believers from time to time. Jesus tells the crowd, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Notice the differences between the singular and plural use of the word work in this context. Works of God are things that we do for God. That's what they ask about, right? What are the works that we have of God that we need to be doing? Well, the work of God is what God does for us. It's a singular, the work of God versus the works of God. God only requires faith, and even that work is his work, something he gives us as a gift, which becomes clearer at the end of this section of the text. The crowd still doesn't get it. They still refuse to believe Jesus' words. After witnessing the miraculous feeding only the day before, remember, this only happened the day after of the feeding of the 5,000 on the other side of the shore, Sea of Galilee. They ask him for yet another sign to prove his authority, if that one wasn't enough, okay? Then they got to give a hint of what they seek, what sign they're seeking. They're looking for something like manna. There was an expectation in Jewish tradition that can be seen in several sections of the collection of rabbinic teaching known as the Midrash, which is a written tr- collection of the oral teaching uh, of the Jewish faith. That there was, a, there was a, an expectation that there would be a recurrence of the provision of manna in the Messianic age. That is, when the Messiah would come, somehow associated with him would be the provision of manna again. Essentially, they're asking this. The crowd uses this Exodus-based tradition to test Jesus, and they're basically saying, can you top Moses? I mean, you know, Moses, he gave us manna in the wilderness for 40 years, you know. Um, can you top him? Because if you are the Messiah and you come, then you should be able to do that. And Jesus reminds them that they have the whole story wrong anyway. It was God, not Moses, who provided the manna in the wilderness. And they need to look beyond Moses to the Father, who gives true bread. This bread is actually standing before them right there. 
It is Jesus the Messiah, the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The people's insistence on bread as a sign and their inability to grasp Jesus' meaning sets the context for one of Jesus' most scandalous statements that we'll see in the sermon next week. A statement that's so shocking to their ears that, we will, that many turn against him at this point. In fact, this chapter marks a major shift in Jesus' ministry from a time of great popularity and acceptance where crowds were just following him everywhere to, to a time of opposition and rejection that would ultimately end up in Jerusalem and a cross. But Jesus leads up to that statement in our next section as he talks to us about the people's need revealed in verses 35 to 40. Calvin suggests in his commentary that there's a mocking tone in the crowd's response. Sir, give us this bread always. We might say it this way. Yeah, right. Then give us this bread all the time, starting now. Their minds are still stuck on the previous day's miracle. They do not understand that Jesus is not talking about mere physical bread with some type of mysterious, life-sustaining property. So now Jesus makes it explicit and reveals their true need. I am the bread of life. The Greek construction behind this phrase in each of John's seven formal I am statements is very significant. In each case, John uses the words in Greek, ego, eimi, followed by a predicate that describes Christ and his mission. I read those seven for you earlier. This same construction is used in the Greek translation of Exodus 3.14, when God declares in his name, I am who I am. Jesus is making a clear reference to his own deity. They get that. Linking himself to the Exodus and the Passover, which is in the context of what these folks are asking about, which is the seminal redemptive event in Old Covenant history. And, to God, and he's also linking himself to God's covenantal promises to his people. Now, like manna, Jesus was given by the Father in order to grant and to sustain life. However, in contrast to manna, which spoiled and only temporarily fed their hunger, Jesus is the food that does not perish. And since he remains forever, the life that he provides is eternal. Those who partake of Christ will never be spiritually hungry or thirsty again because the life he grants and sustains is eternal life. N.T. Wright captures that connection. He says, the bread and the fish that Jesus had distributed to the crowds, remember the day before, were there to lead the eye, the mind, and the heart to the true gift of God to his people then and there. They were there to open up their understanding to the fact that the new Passover, the new Exodus, was taking place right in front of them, and that Jesus was leading it. Thomas Schreiner writes, Jesus is the new Moses, giving his people bread from heaven, but he is greater than Moses, for the bread that he gives does not simply satisfy the stomach, but grants eternal life. Indeed, Jesus does not merely give bread from heaven. He is the bread of heaven. And how does someone partake of this true bread? They must believe and trust in the broken body and shed blood of Christ on the cross. We partake of him through faith. Now, knowing that some would respond negatively to his claims, we'll see that next week's, in next week's text, and they would cease following him, Jesus affirms the irresistible calling of God and his ability to keep to the end those whom he has called. These are comforting words, or should be comforting words, for those of us who are believers in Christ. Christ's sustenance is not to be doubted. The Father has given to Christ a definite number of men and women who will come to saving faith. They cannot be lost. 
Jesus will never cast out any who come to him in faith, and he will raise them up on the last day. Our security rests not on our merit, but totally on the calling of the Father, the faithfulness of the Son, and the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. And because our future resurrection is certain, we have eternal life not just when we die, but already in the here and now. So how do we respond to the truth that recorded by John in this text? Well, if you're a seeker here this morning, Jesus reminds us that we too quickly seek satisfaction from the material things of this world. Material things, manna in the wilderness, barley loaves near the Sea of Galilee, or any of the material blessings of our affluent culture cannot satisfy our core spiritual hunger and need for redemption. Just cannot. Jesus alone is the bread that satisfies and leads to eternal life. So how do we acquire this life-giving bread? The only work that guarantees the possession of this redemptive manna is to believe in Christ Jesus and his work on our behalf. The gospel sabotages legalism or performance as a basis for acceptability with God. It will not allow. If God is moving in your heart today, then talk to Dennis, me, or one of the elders. We would love to share the depths of this good news with you. If you're a believer in, in this portion of God's redemptive narrative, Jesus challenges us to prioritize seeking him, the true source of life, over the pursuit of material things. The gospel does not set up a false dualism that views the material world as bad and the spiritual as good. God promises to provide for our, our earthly needs in many different places of the scripture. However, the scriptures warn us many times about making idols of personal peace and affluence, a life that's free of controversy, struggle or inconvenience, and full of material treasures. That's what this generation wants to pursue. We are to seek, believe, and trust Christ first and fully. Our hearts are not to be focused on working for the bread that perishes. Instead, we are to feed on the bread of life. And we do that through faith. Hendrickson, in his commentary, writes, it is through faith, that is, through intimate union with him, assimilating him spiritually as physical bread is assimilated physically, that man attains to everlasting life. This faith is not a one-time ascent to the gospel. It is an ongoing, daily process, a constant use of the means of grace, a daily rehearsing of the truths of the gospel in our hearts. Remember Paul's words in Galatians 2.20? Many of you have memorized this. The life I now live in the body, I, I constantly live by faith in the Son of God. This walk of faith involves a real identification with Christ, a real assimilation with him, a real union with him from which every other doctrine of grace flows. Our justification, our adoption as sons and daughters, our growth and maturity to be more like Christ, and ultimately our resurrection and glorification. In the end, in the end, whether we are seekers or disciples, we need to remember that every day, every hour, every minute, every second, that the only thing we bring to Jesus is our need. All we offer is the admission that we have nothing to offer. And the only basis 
for eternal life is the cross. Trusting in the broken body and shed blood of Christ. It is that reality, Christ's broken body and shed blood for us, that John records in chapter 6 in which we celebrate at the table this morning. 